You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Thanks for joining us for our study of six of the Psalms of Ascent from the Old Testament. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and get ready to open God's Word together. Hi. It's good to see you. It's great to have the rest of you join us by the brilliance of video. Um, great to be here in Elgin. God bless you. Uh, I was, I've been gone the last few weeks. I was in Canada. Uh, so there's lots of stories about that you'll hear over the next year. Um, no, it was great. It was great to see some friends and, and family. It was great also to be able to have lots of our budding preachers get an opportunity. So I really appreciate your um, support for them, and I'm excited to see how God uses them in the days ahead. But for today, what I want to do is I actually want to study in a new series uh, that we're starting today in Psalm 121. It's uh, actually a series that I'll talk about in a second called the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. So Psalm 121. While you're turning there, let me tell you um, one of my uh, favorite things to do uh, in my life is actually to frighten my wife. Um, I, she is delightful, and it never gets old. Sometimes I throw water on her in the shower, and she screams bloody murder, and I just laugh and laugh. I'm a good husband. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, though, in, in days gone by, though, when we didn't have children, is that um, sometimes we'd go and watch these movies that were really, you know, like had a scary thriller. They were not really horror movie people, but you'd get these movies that have kind of a, you know, a, a scary animal or something that's chasing everybody around. And uh, as soon as we'd come home, I'd pretend to be that animal and chase her around. And uh, she would say, yell, stop, stop, what are you doing? And I'd hide quietly until I could scare the living daylights out of her. My, the movie that really got me started on that was Jurassic Park. Some of you guys remember that. Of course, Jurassic World's around now. And it was the first time we were ever introduced to velociraptors. And I thought that was, that's the perfect animal for me to be in the house when she, in the dark. So one, I remember we watched the movie, and we were staying actually at my in-law's uh, parsonage. That's a, if you're new to church, that's a word that refers to when a church owns a house that's next to the church, and uh, the pastor lives there. That's called the parsonage. Well, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, they lived in this parsonage, which was right next door to a church in eastern Washington State, which is in the middle of wheat fields. I, like, I, I mean middle of wheat, wheat field, wheat field, wheat field, church, parsonage, wheat field, wheat field, wheat field, that, that kind of thing, okay? And the wheat would grow up quite, of course, quite high. And have you ever seen alien movies? All the alien movies, there's always wheat around them, and the aliens are in the wheat, and they are. Uh, that's exactly what this place was like. In the middle of, honestly, if you drove out there, you'd be like, this is the middle of nowhere. There is nothing anywhere around here. And so at night, you could hear the whistling, the coyotes in the distance and the whistling wind. And this was a perfect opportunity to be the velociraptor. And so my wife and I were staying there because uh, her parents were out of town and we were staying there. Uh, and that house was old and creaky. It was an old farmhouse. And uh, I started to like wander around the house and hide in different rooms, and she'd be like, Jeff, Jeff, you know? She has this fear that the rapture's gonna happen and she's not going, and so sometimes that's what she's like, oh no. Uh, but I would just hide around corners and try to scare the living daylights out of her and try to, and try to, to jump on her. Um, I actually had a friend one time say to me, why in the world would you do that? Uh, I said, because I can, because I can. But that fear of being alone, right, of, of being fa facing a danger 
and having nobody else around is really, like when they do the hierarchy of fears in people's lives, right, it is very near the top. Public speaking, top, right? And then fear of being alone, especially when something bad happens. Which is why all the horror movies are dumb, right? Because everyone's like, let's split up. Shut up. That's stupid. What are you talking about? You know, split up. You stick together because everybody's scared to death of being alone. You see the movie Castaway? It's an old one, Tom Hanks, right? He's so scared of being alone, he turns a volleyball into a guy. Thinks a face on him and talks about it to him about it. Because we're so afraid of that loneliness. What we need in our lives is actually companionship, but the kind of companionship that's capable of handling the harms that are heading our way, because there are harms heading our way, and we know it. We, we need someone who's going to be with us all the time, who both has the power to deal with those harms and also the care for us. So that when they come, they don't just abandon. That's what this passage is about. Psalm 121 is basically a massive reminder that God watches over his people. That the Lord is with us as his people, that the Lord cares for his people, he has power to help his people. And in order to get that point across, it's just like one point, right? But in order to get that point across, the psalmist, he, he kind of uses all these images. That's the beauty of psalms, right? They're songs. So they use imagery and they compare God to certain things or use pictures in order for you to uh, understand who God is and what he's like. So there are five different pictures that are in this psalm that I want to walk through, five of them that make one point, and that is that God is with you everywhere you go. He, t- he looks after us everywhere he go. And then at the end, I want to just say, okay, so what, is that, what does that mean for us? Like really practically speaking, how should a psalm like this affect us, all right? So here, here's the first of the five images um, The mountains, the mountains, Uh, these are the Psalms of Ascent over the next few weeks. That's the series that we're we're in, Uh, brand new this week. The Psalms of Ascent are the songs that the people of Israel used to sing on their way to worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem. And in order to get to the temple, you would have to ascend the mountain of the Lord. You'd have to ascend Mount Zion. And so they're, they're like, pilgrim songs where they all sing these together and they get to the top of the mountain along the way. And so a lot of the imagery that's used in them is actually really uh, important for people who are walking on narrow pathways and are facing the challenges of a long pilgrimage or a long caravan or something like that. So here's here's Psalm 121. Uh, I lift my eyes to the hill From where does my help come from? It's interesting he talks about uh, the hills. When you're standing in the valley before you go up to Jerusalem, there's all sorts of different mountains, peaks that are are kind of around there. And if you go to any old city in in, uh, the ancient world, the, the high places, right, the tops of the hills, are always where the gods were, were worshipped, right? If you, if you have a really good God, you know, and you name him Shemahosaphat or whatever, and you say, okay, I'm going to put my God Shemahosaphat and he's going to be up, you always want to find the highest hill to prove what? He's the best one. If you, if you can go to the highest hill, your God is the highest God. 
So what would happen is if you stood in a valley and you looked around and there were peaks around you, and by peaks, please don't understand, like these aren't the Rockies peaks. These are like, you know, what people on the East Coast called mountains, which are like little bumps, okay? Like people here in Illinois. There's, that's a mountain. No, that's just a bump, okay? But you'd put your, your temple on top of that bump. And so... Um, and so uh, I totally got lost because my mind is thinking to myself about that little, we call, we call the, their little bump by the airport, Mount Illinois, because it's the biggest thing we've seen in the whole state at, at this point. So you're standing in the valley and you're looking up all of these hills and you're, you're, you're asking the question, right? There's a God up in there, there's a God up there, there's a God up there, and there's a God up there. You're asking the question, from where does my help come? And what you're essentially saying is, which one of these gods can I trust to provide for me what I need? Now, his answer, of course, is, well, my help comes from the Lord. Why? Well, he made the heaven and the earth. And the people, if you make something, you have ownership over it. Everything you see, the mountains that they see that the other gods are sitting on were made by Yahweh. They wouldn't even be up there if Yahweh hadn't made the hill. So where does my help come from? My help comes from the biggest, baddest, best God there is on the highest mountain, Mount Zion. Because he made everything. And therefore he owns everything and he can do everything. There's a... There's another psalm that really gets at this image. Uh, well, um, put not your trust in princes. Uh, I always feel like I need to contextualize that for us. Uh, the Obamas, uh, Bidens, uh, Trumps, what, whatever, politics. What, I don't care who it is. Put your, don't put your trust in princes and the great leaders of our day and the ones who promise you that, oh, this is going to be great. I got a system. It's going to solve everything for you forever and ever and ever, right? You'll own nothing and be happy. Ugh. Okay? Put, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Well, why is there no salvation? Well, uh, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his, his plans, they perish. So he's, got, he's got a termination date. Every great person has a moment where they don't breathe anymore, and then at that point, all of their plans are up to the next people who might not even share them. They might actually have the desire to undo them all, right? We know this. Every four years, the president comes in, I'm going to write every executive order and wipe everything out that the guy did before me. Right. So don't put your trust in princes, but blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Why? Well, he made the heaven and the earth. Sound familiar? The sea and all that's in them. Who keeps faith forever. I mean, he can be counted on all the time. There's never a termination date. And everything you see around you is a product of his ability. So in the grand scheme of all the options that you have to provide for you. And I know we don't have like gods on hills and stuff. But we sure do look to gods like money, don't we? We, we, we look to other things. I have, I have insurance for that. The suburbs are basically 
our approach to trying to protect our lives from all the harms, yes? Okay, no? That's why you have a garage, so you can close them out behind you. You go in, you close them, you go inside and watch TV. They can't get you there. Nothing bad will happen inside your suburban home. So we have our own little gods, our own little ways that we trust. We think, oh, we can take care of ourselves or whatever. But this psalm is basically saying, no, 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 you can't. Your gods won't help. The only one that will help is the Lord Yahweh. Uh, I do want to press this just for a second. Um, No one else, the argument here is no one else, none of those other options have the ability to control the coming harms. You ever thought to yourself, why is it that, why is it that idolatry is a thing? Why is it that uh, throughout the history of the world, people choose to worship certain deities and certain things? They even make like little statues to them. Why do people go to the tarot card reader? What are, what are they trying to do? If you go into villages in Africa, you'll meet people who are called witch doctors. Why do people visit the witch doctor? What are they after? Well, Here's how it works. The com- one of the common things that everybody in the history of the world has faced is harms, right? There are things out there that we do not control that will come into our lives and destroy stuff, right? Like kids. <laughs> or COVID, or a virus, or whatever the government's doing recently, or war, or the economy, or, or, or. When you get worried at night, Or during the day, you're worrying because there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that you don't control that if it gets in, it's going to ruin everything. And the fact that you can't control it is a real issue. So all these harms are invading or threatening to invade and you need to get control over those particular harms. So how do you do it? You know your limitations. What you need is Superman, right? You need Aquaman. By the way, Aquaman, what a weakling. You need Batman who gets beat up all the time. No, you you need someone who's got ability, greater power than 11. You need 11. You need somebody who's going to come and going to help. Stranger things. Okay? You, You... you need somebody who's going to be able to come and help you. And so, so what you do is you end up putting your trust in an idol, a, a bail, or for us, money. I just have enough money, then I'll have enough insurance that everything that happens to me can be taken care of, right? But, of course, then there's cancer, so we're, we're looking for something outside of us that has control and power and ability to take care of us. And so we try to find it through the witch doctor. We try to find it through money. Or we try to find it through a myriad of other things. But there's only one who can do it. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come out of all of these options? From the Lord Only. He's the only one that can take care of us. So, so the psalmist is drawing our attention to the mountains. This is the first picture, okay? The mountains. Here's the second one. A slipping foot. He, he will not let your foot be moved. 
He, he will not, so the image here is the people of Israel as they walk up uh, this treacherous path ascending to Jerusalem. Uh, the path is not always, it's not I-90, okay? It's like roads in, in you know, third world countries or where I lived in New Zealand. They're horrible roads. They just wind back and forth and they go down massive cliffs and there's no guardrails and everything. You're like, oh my goodness, we're all gonna die. That's, that's what it's like, except you're walking up there and, and, and if your foot hits you know, a rock that is a little une, un, uneasy, uh, you're, you're done. You're going down, baby. And so this image for a pilgrim is like the Lord won't, won't let my foot slip. It's a picture that means a lot to them as they're walking along. He won't let my, my foot slip. Um, because then God is securing my feet, I can be bold, right? Let's just think, think this through with me for a minute. <laughs> Years ago, there was a... <laughs> An article in the Vancouver Sun, kind of Vancouver, British Columbia. We don't get a lot of ice there. It's like Seattle where it just rains constantly. So uh, when we have ice storms or whatever, the Vancouver Sun, that's like the Chicago Sun-Times or whatever, they, they, they publish articles that say, okay, so here's how you walk on ice. Like it's front page, you know, somebody standing there on ice or like, here's how you walk on ice. You have to waddle. Everyone from the middle of Canada is like, oh, come on, really? We have to have an article for this? Well, yes, because you have to waddle, take really slow steps. The most important thing when you're walking on ice is to be very, very careful and slow and deliberate and make sure that each foot is solidly planted before the next one goes, goes down. Right, that's very different, though, from walking on uh, the hard ground in the middle of the summer on a flat piece of property, right, on a, on a soccer field, where you just run, you don't even think about where your feet are hitting because you're just going, there's the ball, I'm going for it. You know, you just, you're bold. You're bold on the solid ground. You're really skittish on, on the ice. Right, so that's the picture that the psalmist is trying to convey here. If your feet aren't slipping, why in the world would you be weak or passive or not bold in your walking, in your striving, in your faith. Why would you do that at all? It makes no sense. Can you imagine walking out to a soccer field and someone's like, I don't want to trip. I don't want to trip. No, run, man, run. It's safe. Your feet, your feet won't, won't slip. <laughs> okay, so I mentioned the, the, the roads in New Zealand. One of, my, one of my worst moments, okay? I fully admit it. Uh, my in-laws, the ones who lived in the parsonage, they came over to New Zealand when we lived there, and there is a road that goes over this hill from what's called Tasman Bay to Golden Bay. It's called the Takaka Hill, okay? And the road does this, up the side of the hill, over, and the other side. Now, we've driven this road lots of times, and my car totally handles it. And I'm a guy, so, you know, you make a game out of it, ready Go, right? You drive as fast as you can, right? Now, it's just me and my wife. All I have to deal with her is saying, stop. And I'm like, whatever, you're fine. Now, but we, you know, when somebody comes to New Zealand, we want to take them over to Golden Bay because it's just, it's idyllic. It's beautiful. Okay, my in-laws came. We start driving. And I'm like, okay, ready, go. And we start driving. <laughs> and the, you know, when you go the corners, 
There is, like, you're, it goes straight down, and there's no guardrails at all. And my mother-in-law is sta- sitting over the wheel that's sometimes kind of going into the ditch and back up while we're going around these corners. So she's sort of hanging, looking straight down, and she's like, oh, I'm not feeling good. And my father-in-law's like, perhaps you could slow down. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's still doing it. Why? I'm, I'm not going to slow down. I know exactly how well this car is going to be able to handle this. I've done this a hus- dozens of times. It's fine. Well, she eventually threw up. Um, again, my father-in-law said, why did, why did you drive so fast? And I said, because I can. Right? And I can. <laughs> I'm a great son-in-law, too. Just <laughs> and husband, son-in-law. Uh, the, the reason I can is because I know the grippiness of the tires, and I, I've been through this way before. This, this, is the, this is the image that he's after, is, is that if you know that you are going to be safe, if you know that you are taken care of and that your foot will never slide in such a way that you will be you know, left into the ditch, if, if you know that the tires will always grip, you don't drive it like a golf cart. Right? You drive it like a Lamborghini. And yet, so many of us in our Christian faith, right? We are a bunch of golf cart driving Christians. I don't know, the Lord, I don't know. It's going to be really hard. Come on, get out there. Hit the gas. Go, baby. Right? Your foot won't slip. He's got it. Third one. The third one. It's about a sleeping guard. Right? Uh, behold, he or he who ke- keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor, nor sleep. He's not going to be asleep at the wheel. He's not going to be, uh, hey, when you need him, he's not going to be over there. I don't, what? I don't know. What? Like your friends would be. You ever have that friend that sleeps all night? They're the ones you played all the pranks on when you went and had the sleepovers, you know, with the toothpaste and everything. He'll sleep through anything. That's not the Lord. He won't sleep through anything. And because he never sleeps, you and I can sleep. Because he never sleeps, you and I can sleep. You know, I didn't get an opportunity to talk a lot about the, my favorite parts about Elijah because uh, I, I left, and the best parts of Elijah got to be preached by others. So one of my favorite passages in Elijah really uh, makes the point that our God is different than all the other gods in this sense. He's there, and he answers. You don't need to scream and yell and freak out or anything like that. He's there, and he answers. And this is really becomes apparent when the Elijah sets up this big fight between Elijah and his prophets of Baal. He's got 400 and something prophets of Baal there. They're, he says, okay, we're going to set up this contest. And this is what happens when they decide to set up the contest. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For your many, right? It's like 450 to one. How do I even have a chance, says Elijah you are many, and call upon the name of your God. Hey, but don't cheat. Put no fire on it. Don't you get over there with your little matches, your Bic lighter. Don't you do it. So they were like, okay. They took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. That's a good session, Right? If you know anything about Baal worship, one of the ways they worshiped was by whipping and beating themselves to the point of blood. 
And so they would like, look how much we care. And they did these little chants and stuff. And so you can imagine for three hours listening to this. Well, that's, that's Elijah. And they were saying, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But look, there was, there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar. Isn't that a great image? Ooh, like zombies going around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah, my man, right? He starts mocking them. God bless him. Right? He starts mocking them, saying, Hey, maybe you should cry aloud, but for, for he, I mean, he's a God, right? He, surely he's, he's there. You should yell. He's a God. He should probably be able to hear you guys, right? He's super powerful. Maybe he's musing. <laughs> he's thinking. He's in his study. Don't bother me. I'm trying to figure out, you know, the law of thermodynamics here. He's either musing or, or he's, and I won't go into much detail here. He's, he's in the porta potty. I don't know. You know, every father knows this. Would you just leave me alone? I just want these men. Maybe that's Baal. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is, he's asleep. And he has to be awakened. Right? That's all the other gods need help. All the other gods need rest. All the other gods need to have a time where they get away and they don't have, aren't bothered by anything. Not Yahweh. He never slumbers nor sleeps. And like I said, because he never slumbers nor sleeps, you and I can. Listen, even the one story I know about in Scripture where God is sleeping, it proves that he never sleeps. I know, it sounds weird. But there is a story where Jesus is asleep. And the story itself actually point, points to the same conclusion that the Psalm 121 says. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, them being the disciples, uh, let's go across to the other side. They're going to go across to the Sea of Galilee. Notice that he does not say at this particular moment, hey guys, let's go out in the middle and we're going to drown. You good? No, the plan is spoken by the Lord of the universe. We're going to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in their boat just as he was, and other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose. You've probably heard this before, but in the Sea of Galilee, the winds come down suddenly, and they come through the valley, and they just blow across the sea, sometimes with like 10-foot swells. Break into, break into the towns on the shores. So these, these are largely fishermen. These people have grown up around this lake, okay? These are like the people who live, you know, in Skokie or whatever, and like this, I understand the Lake Michigan. She's a stormy seed. And I, like that, those people, right? They, they, they get their livelihood from this water. So they, they understand, you know, when it's getting bad. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, he was in the stern. That's the back. And he was asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said the thing that you and I always want to say to God when we get in a situation where everything's going haywire. 
and we're screaming out like the prophets of Baal and God isn't answering because we think he's asleep in slumber and we're like, you're not supposed to be asleep or slumber. They woke him and said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Somebody who cared about us would be actively up here and bailing the water out. You should be helping. Instead, you're sleeping. Get up! And he awoke and he rebuked the wind. Uh, you rebuke people. You rebuke, like, persons. Like, demons can be rebuked and people can be rebuked. Jesus gets up and is like, hey, wind! Knock it off. And he said to the sea, <laughs> out to the sea, hey, you too, stop it. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And then he said to them, well, why, why, are you, why are you so afraid? Don't, don't you still have faith? Isn't it crazy that you've got Jesus in the, in the boat and he's asleep in the midst of a storm and they are freaking out? What is the difference between these two people? Well, according to Jesus, he understood who he was and where they were headed and that it was sure and that his father wasn't gonna leave in the middle of the ocean or middle of the sea and they were gonna die. That wasn't in the card. So you might as well just lay your head down and be fine with it. The others are like, oh no, it's all going, all going wrong. Which one of those do you think you look like when things are going wrong? I know which one I do. Jesus. That's the one I look like. Look, even though the point, it's easy to see what the point is. Even though it looked like God wasn't caring for them, he was. He was. Jesus' father never sleeps, so Jesus could sleep. And those who follow him are guaranteed the same provision. So sleep. Some of you really need to hear that, you know that. Lay your head on the pillow, realize your limitations, look to the mountains, see which one can care for you, and doze away. Here's the fourth one. Uh, it's shade, like an umbrella, okay? The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade in your right hand. You see that? That's like you and I walking around with our umbrella or you go golfing and people put it on their little golf thing so that they don't get the sun down on them. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Now I'm gonna to explain to you in a second why it's the moon is involved here. But you understand that the, sun, the dangers that the sun would have, especially if you are a pilgrim and you're walking up this hill. For you and me, the danger is usually, I don't wanna get a sunburn. But for them, actually the danger was, I don't want to get like dehydrated, I don't wanna get sunstroke, so that I start seeing vision. So I need protection from the sun so that I can move, 
move forward and be safe from all of the harmful effects. As you can see, it's the same kind of image that we've gone through so far. So God is like the umbrella that, or the big shade tree or the palm that is providing you, you, you safety as you move forward. He guards you from, from the sun and by the moon. <laughs> now, when I read that, I'm like, really? We need to be guarded by the moon? Uh, well, look, uh, in ages gone by, uh, people believed that when the moon came out and it was a full moon, weird things happened. Actually, when I, my kids were little, really little and uh, we were over someone, someone else's house and they were running like crazy because it was like nine at night and they were like, Wah! Uh, I said, whoa, they're really crazy. And, and the person whose house uh, we, we were at were, it's a full moon. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Why? They believed actually that, look, when the full moon comes out, they turn into werewolves and they start attacking everything. Right? You're moonstruck. That's the language you use. We're moonstruck. We do it for like romantic things. But you hear the image. The, the language comes from somewhere. And for ages past, they believe that. And certainly in the ancient world, that's something they, they believe. So the sun has power to, to, to harm you. And the moon has power to harm you. And both of them, the Lord protects us from. This, this sun and moon, it's what we call a merism. The argument is, it's not just the sun. It's not just the moon. It's both of those and everything in between. So what is there to harm you? What is it that God can't protect you from? And the answer is nothing. We get the same argument in Romans 8, 37. Uh, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, now notice the merisms, that neither death nor life and everything in between nor, nor angels, nor rulers, and everything in between, nor things present, nor things to come, and everything in between, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right, that's, that's the image. God's our shade. Last one. He's the one who keeps us in a sense that he watches over us. He's, the, he's our guard. He's our guardian. The Lord will, will keep you from all evil. He, he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your, your coming in. It doesn't matter what stage you're in in your life. You're, whether you're going out and you're going to college or you're coming in at Thanksgiving or you're going out to find a spouse or you're coming back in because you found one. You're going out because your spouse died or you're coming back in because you got remarried. I don't, all of the stages of life, all of them. The Lord will keep you. The word uh, keep actually means to, to, to watch over you. It, it's, it's language that's used of, of like how a gardener takes particular care for their garden. And by gardener, I mean like a golf course, like groundskeeper. When I was in New Zealand, I actually, it was the only time in my life I ever did any gardening. My wife said, oh, this is gonna be great for the rest of our lives. And I was like, nope, this is the only time this ever happens, okay? I'm going to take care of this garden. Because everywhere in New Zealand, that's what you did. You go to work, you come home, and you work on your garden. So, you know, I wanna be contextualized. And I, I did that, moved a bunch of dirt around, had it, designed professionally by a friend of mine. 
And I went through with it. But when you put that much work in something, you, you take a lot of care of it. And so there was these little weeds that they had in the grass called paspalum there. It was a different kind of grass, but it looked weird and funky. It was not the grass that I wanted there. And so I would go, no kidding, in the evenings with my, with my I had a little uh, pocket knife. And I'd walk around the, the, the lawn looking back and forth for any little tiny pieces of paspalum. And when I saw one, I'd get down on my hands and knees and I'd cut it out. Like, what an idiot. And I'm walking around on the lawn with my knife in my hand. You know, if you would sign me, what is he doing? Right? Well, I was so concerned about this, this lawn. Well, yeah, I was watching over it. I was watching, have you played uh, Capture the Flag? You know, when you're the, the prison keeper or you're the flag guardian? Yes, flag, capture the flag? I'm getting a lot of response from you guys right now. Capture the flag, you know, the 20 years of camp. Okay, we're all into it. Okay, so, so capture the flag, uh, and you have to play the, the, you, the flag keeper. You're the head, your head's on a swivel because they come from everywhere. All those people coming to get your flag. Yeah, the guardian. You're watching over the flag. You're keeping, you're keeping the flag. And this is the point of the whole psalm. If this sounds repetitive to you, it should. The psalmist is trying to say, how many times do I need to say this so that you actually understand it? He who keeps you, verse 3, will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper, in verse 5. The Lord will keep you. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in. Did you get it? He, he is with you, watching over you, wherever you go and whatever you do. So what? Okay, I got all the images. I understand what the psalm is trying to say and it's poetry. And so what's supposed to happen when I read you poetry or sing you a song is you're supposed to feel something, right? That's, guys, that's why you write the song for her. That's why you did it. You got on, I love you, you're so pretty. Like, you're, you want her to feel it. That's why you put it into verse. So this is in verse. This is why the Bible's filled with songs and psalms. It's supposed to make touch your affections. So what is it supposed to make you feel? Two things. One, it's supposed to make you feel boldness. Right? I, I mentioned that a minute ago. Uh, it's supposed to make you feel like, okay, if the Lord is watching over me and all of these things are true about God and my relationship to him, why am I so afraid to go forward and take risks? Why am I backing down so much when it comes to the spirit? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're in trouble now. Right? The handheld one. Why am I so worried about the spending, giving to the Lord or seeing how he could provide for my life or going here or there or doing whatever it is that he calls me to do? Look, I'll, I'll make the argument for you, okay? I believe that in order for you and I to have boldness in any circumstance, what we need is someone with us who has both power and concern for us so that we can go forward and do the thing that we're being called to do. 
you need accompaniment by somebody both with power and concern. Because here's, here's why. Look, if I have a friend and they're with me and I say, okay, by the way, alone, you don't have a lot of courage. You know that. You know that. But if I'm with somebody, what I need is I need someone who's got a lot of power. But what if they don't have much concern for me, right? So Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he doesn't know me. He should, but he doesn't know me. So if, if I, he's strong, and if we were in the same room together, I'd be like, now there's a powerful guy. And if somebody comes up to me and starts pushing me around, I could yell, Dwayne, rock. He wouldn't do anything. So as a result, I'm afraid. I should be afraid in that room. Because even though he's strong, he's not gonna help me at all. All right, what if there's somebody who's got lots of concern for me, Right? And, but doesn't have much power. So like we're talking Justin Bieber here. He has a lot of concern for me. He seems like a nice guy, right? If you were in a room terrain, he'd be like, oh, okay. I really like, I really like you, Jeff. Okay. We're in a room. Somebody gets all mad at us. And I'm like, who's going to help? And I look over to Bieber. I'm like, oh, no. I don't, I don't think this is going to go well. All right? Like maybe you can use you as a shield or something. But I don't, it's the rest is not going to work. So I'm afraid. Right? Because I don't, I don't have someone who has power to deal with it. But if I have someone who has both power to care for me and has concern to, to care for me, what, what's the result? My friend Nate, I, he's six foot eight. I spent the last week at his house. Six foot eight, he's huge. If I'm with him anywhere and you start mouthing off to me, I'll get behind his shoulder and go, Nate, go get him. Just hide behind him the whole time. He's enormous and he loves me. And when I have someone like that with me, what happens? Well, I have boldness. Of course I have boldness. Okay, so here's the thing. You have a God who when he's, the question is asked, how big is the universe? He stretches his hand and he says, yeah, about that big. He's the one who spoke the universe into place. Everything you see around you, he's the maker of heaven and earth. He can do anything. He has done everything. There's a sea in the way, don't care. I'll part it. Death, I'll raise it. He's done all of those things. Talk about power. He's the rock. Yes, but, but listen now. It's not just that he has this strength. He's got concern as well. He's, listen, if you're a Christian, you need to understand, your Christianity didn't begin when you just start, you got baptized. It began in, in eternity past when the, when the God of the universe should have passed you by, but he marked you out instead and said, this one is mine. And he drew you to himself in time and he surrounds you with his providence in such a way that you come to faith in him. You can't turn away. He woos you. And then he says, this one will be mine forever, and I will take the rest of your days on earth to, to chisel you, to make you into a trophy that I'm going to demonstrate to all the universe in all eternity what I can do with my grace. And he will put you on a pedestal, and he will say, that is what I've done. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. No matter how far you run, he will chase you down. Because you're his. That power, with that concern, leads to, oh, I don't know. 
It's just so hard. I don't know. Maybe we should be careful. Oh, come on, man. But the golf cart should make you bold in faith. Second, though, it should make you encouraged in pain. Because listen, I'll finish here. If God has power and concern for us and watches over us always, the painful things that happen to us cannot be a result of weakness on his part or indifference on his part. It's not because he can't deal with the harm, and it can't be because he doesn't want to deal with the harm. There has to be another reason that that difficulty, that harm is in your life. God himself must have permitted it in your life for some purpose, for some reason that fits within his care and his power. So no matter what it is, you should be able to say, all right, all right. I know you have power to stop it, and I know you have love. So if it's still happening, there's a reason here. I was flying back, uh, of course, from Canada in the last week, and they put me in the back of the plane. They always do uh, with, the, with the babies, right? They see me and say, yeah, you'd fit in the back of the plane with the babies. And so I usually sit kind of right in front of them. And I don't mind, it, it's fine, but usually what happens with the babies is their, their parents have all the energy at the beginning, so they're taking care of them really well and all this stuff, but by the end of the flight, when the plane starts to descend into Chicago, the baby starts freaking out, which I understand. You would understand that too, right? Here's your parent who's always cared for you, who's always had the power to take care of everything you need. There's never been a moment when you've been super hungry. Usually when you cry, they try to address the need. You know, if you saw yourself, you, they took care of it, all of this stuff. And in this moment, though, you're descending, and they are sitting there holding you, and they, they can't do anything. Or it seems like they can't do anything. You're looking at them, and you're freaking out because your ears are popping, and you're like, ah! And you're looking at the eye of your parent, and the parent is just holding you and saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And I thought to myself, isn't this basically the way that we are? Isn't this essentially the case when things go wrong in our lives? We're like this little kid who doesn't understand why it's happening, but, but God's like the parent who's like, look, here's the thing. I could have stopped us from getting on this plane. I could have cared enough, I guess, to, to stop us from getting on this plane, but if I, if I did, we would never see Grandma. If I did, we'd never get to where we need to go. And so even though the child doesn't know the reason, there is one. There is one child. There is one. So you can be bold, but you can be encouraged. Because like a mother consoling her frightened child, God watches over us in the midst of even the hardest parts of our lives. There's none like him. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace, your providence, your power, your care. 
just don't think we know it well enough. So Lord, over the next weeks and months uh, of our lives, would you convince us again? Would you help us to see how deep and wide and high and long is the love of Christ? And would that have an effect on our lives in all the appropriate ways that our affections would be touched? It's not just something we think about, but our affections would be touched no matter where we are kind of on our own spiritual pilgrimage, on what stage we are walking up that hill to the temple of God. Whether we're new to the faith or we're wondering whether we want to turn around and go back down or we've been falling forever, Lord, would you show us once again, would you turn the diamond of the gospel once again that it would shine brightly in our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would be changed and affected by it. That boldness would come, Father, and encouragement would come, Father, and joy would be the result. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.